You'd open your Bibles to Revelation chapter 11, as we're now in the events that turn toward Israel. And interestingly enough, last Tuesday we had 60 downloads in Israel. That's very unusual that we would have 60 downloads in Israel. So I wasn't able to track down exactly what they were downloading, but it's something to see that God obviously has some people in Israel that are pretty serious about the scriptures. Follow along as I read, beginning at verse 3 tonight in chapter 11. And I will grant authority to my two witnesses, and they will prophesy for 1260 days clothed in sackcloth. These are the two olive trees and the two lampstands that stand before the Lord of the earth. And if anyone wants to harm them, fire flows out of their mouth and devours their enemies. So if anyone wants to harm them, he must be killed in this way. These have the power to shut up the sky so that rain will not fall during the days of their prophesying, and they have power over the waters to turn them into blood and to strike the earth with every plague as often as they desire. When they have finished their testimony, the beast that comes up out of the abyss will make war with them and overcome them and kill them, and their dead bodies will lie in the street of the great city, which mystically is called Sodom and Egypt where also their Lord was crucified. So that tells us right there, this is a metaphor for Jerusalem. That's where he was crucified. Verse 9, those from the peoples and tribes and tongues and nations will look at their dead bodies for three and a half days and will not permit their dead bodies to be laid in a tomb. And those who dwell on the earth will rejoice over them and celebrate, and they will send gifts to one another because these two prophets tormented those who dwell on the earth. But after the three and a half days, the breath of life from God came into them, and they stood on their feet, and great fear fell upon those who were watching them. And they heard a loud voice from heaven saying to them, Come up here. Then they went up into heaven in the cloud, and their enemies watched them. And in that hour there was a great earthquake, and a tenth of the city fell. Seven thousand people were killed in the earthquake. Now, that's interesting because I read one commentator, he says, we really don't know what the number is. And I'm reading that and going, it's pretty clear, isn't it? I mean, uh, 7,000, 7,000 people were killed in the earthquake and the rest were terrified and gave glory to the God of heaven. The second woe is past. Behold, the third woe is coming quickly. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for the inspired scriptures and we're grateful for this good crowd that's out here tonight to partake of them. We pray that your spirit would move amongst us tonight, Lord. And do a wonderful work here. We'll thank you for that. In Jesus' name, amen. We know, and as having gone through the prophecies that deal with this tribulation, that in the first half of the great tribulation, billions of people will die as the target of God's wrath. In fact, if we've done our math right, by this point in time, half the world's population is gone. We also know that as the great tribulation nears the halfway point, things are going to take a real turn toward national Israel. The prophet Jeremiah predicted there would be a time in the tribulation that is called the time of Jacob's trouble. Jeremiah said, alas, for that day is great, there's none like it. It is the time of Jacob's distress, but he will be saved from it. Well, at this point in the great tribulation, 144,000 Jews have been sealed by God. No one's able to harm them. Those 144,000 Jewish evangelists have been proclaiming the gospel of the kingdom throughout the time where they were first sealed. 
That gospel of the kingdom is the message that Jesus Christ is going to return. Jesus Christ is going to be the king of the world. He's going to establish a kingdom on this earth. What we learn here in Revelation is that God is also going to raise up two Jewish prophet witnesses in Jerusalem. They're probably, in light of the context of John is told to measure the temple in the last study that we had last Sunday night, they're probably going to, in many ways, communicate truth concerning that temple construction. I'm sure that they're going to be monitoring that as that temple is built, and they will be declaring God's precise words concerning that temple and what's going to happen with that temple. They also are going to be testifying what is happening throughout the entire tribulation, These two prophets will be killed, and as the world watches, they're going to rise from the dead, and they're going to rise up into heaven. Now, when these two ascend, the second woe judgment's going to be over, and the worst woe judgment's soon to begin. And this will launch, this final woe judgment will launch us into that horrible time of Jacob's trouble, and that will be the time that's going to feature the Antichrist. You'll meet him tonight. This will be the time that will be a worldwide Jewish persecution and will lead ultimately to Armageddon or Amargedon, as you would pronounce it in Greek. Now, when these two prophet witnesses leave and ascend into heaven, things for Israel will become deadly and disastrous. Now, what we see tonight is in the Great Tribulation, God's going to cause two prophet witnesses to testify and prophesy in Jerusalem. They're going to be killed, and he will publicly raise them up. He will take them up into heaven just before the world is turned over to Satan and the Antichrist. Now, there are 11 prophetic facts I want to show you tonight from these prophets. Number one, these two prophets are given authority by God. Verse 3 says, and I will grant authority to my two witnesses. The verse begins with the verb, I will grant. It's a future tense, indicative mood, active voice verb. It means this. It is a definite fact, indicative mood. That at some point in the future, future tense, I am going to grant and give power to these two active voice. As we've already seen in Revelation 11, that temple is standing now in Jerusalem. And these two, I think, are going to play a prominent role in the sovereign plan of God during that time when that temple is up. They will be pointing out prophecies that relate to the Lord Jesus Christ. Prophecies that are connected to those sacrifices. And prophecies that are connected even to the construction of that temple. Now, the second prophetic fact is these two prophet witnesses are God's witnesses who will prophesy. Verse 3 says, and they will prophesy. Now, there are two words that describe the ministry of these two, and they certainly are not here to flatter people, and they're certainly not here to tell people stuff that's going to make them feel good about themselves. They're here to communicate the truth of God. First of all, they're witnesses. And what that means is they are verbally witnessing and testifying of the truth pertaining to Jesus Christ and the work of God. The second thing that's brought out here is they're prophesying, which means they're predicting exactly what's about to happen. This temple is getting up. They're testifying about the future. I'm assuming they're testifying here about the remaining judgments that are going to occur in the tribulation. They're talking about this Antichrist is going to surface. I mean, one of the first things he's going to want to do is kill these two. We'll see it tonight. They're talking about the second coming of the Lord Jesus Christ, the 1,000-year millennium. They're probably laying out the great white throne judgment in which all the unbelieving dead from all ages are going to face Jesus Christ. They're probably discussing things about the new heaven, new earth, and new Jerusalem. These two are going to be setting forth prophecy. They'll be telling people exactly where they are. This is a kingdom gospel, by the way, not a grace gospel. So at this point in the great tribulation, 
God has 144,000 sealed witnesses that are Jewish, and he has these two prophets in Jerusalem. Now, the third fact that's brought out about them is they're time-regulated. They have a time-regulated ministry. Verse 3 says, and they prophesy for 1,260 days clothed in sackcloth. Now, it is specifically stated that the ministry of these two prophets will be 1,260 days, and 1,260 days is three and a half years. Now, it is not specifically said which three and a half years their prophecies are going to be heralded from Jerusalem. So it's not specifically pointed out. If we take the position that Revelation is laid out in a chronological development, we believe that probably they're going to be on the scene in the first three and a half period before the Antichrist turns vicious against Israel. Then the last three and a half years, when everything turns against Israel, they're gone. So we would suspect that there are two voices actually headquartered in Jerusalem during the first three and a half years of the tribulation. So if that is correct, then as that temple is being rebuilt, you have these two prophets right there in Jerusalem while the rest of the 144,000 are taking the kingdom gospel to the world. These two prophets are in Jerusalem. They're predicting and explaining everything. They'll be communicating to Israel and the world where this tribulation is headed, the importance of the nation Israel, and they'll be explaining it. And God will have given Israel and the world a three and a half year warning about this guy that's going to surface who's going to turn against them, and these two prophets will be effectively communicating that truth. Now, the fourth fact that's brought out about them is they wear humble clothing. Verse 3 says they're clothed in sackcloth. These two witnesses literally probably will be clothed in sackcloth. I take it literal unless there's something in the text that would indicate you don't take it literal. For example, when he talks about Sodom and Egypt, which we'll talk about in just a moment, he says that's the city where the Lord was crucified. So we know that's a metaphorical image being presented there concerning Jerusalem. Well, sackcloth was made of goat or camel's hair. It was used as a symbol of humility. It was also clothing worn as a symbol of mourning. And you have to admit in light of where we're at now in 2022, that if that rapture were to occur tonight, and then you go three and a half years from tonight, and you get to the middle of the tribulation, if you have two guys that are actually sitting in Jerusalem wearing this kind of clothing, they're going to look different. I mean, they're going to stand out to the world if they choose to wear clothing like this. And in Jonah's day, when he preached to Nineveh that God was about to destroy the city and everyone in it, you may recall the whole city humbled themselves before God and mourned, and they all wore sackcloth as a sign of the fact that they've repented. Now, by these two prophet witnesses wearing this kind of clothing, we can draw the following conclusions. They're going to stand out. When you look at these two guys in Jerusalem, they're going to stand out from the majority of people just by what they're wearing. And you're also going to look at them, and they're going to have a humble ministry. There's no glitz or glamour to what they're wearing. I mean, this is not fine clothing here. They will signal to the world that a major destruction from God is on the way, and they're also going to signal to Israel that her worst time of mourning is about to occur. Now, the fifth fact that's revealed is these two prophet witnesses will stand tall and shine bright for God. Verse 4 says, These are the two olive trees and the two lampstands that stand before the Lord of the earth. I want to point out something before we tackle that. And that would be the pronouns that are used here. In verse 3, there's a pronoun they. In verse 4, there's a pronoun these. And in verse 5, there's a pronoun them. 
And those pronouns are all masculine. They're not feminine. And that's not a coincidence. This is the reality of it. These are two men. And God wants us to understand that. These are two men. Both of these men, standing as two olive trees and two lampstands, and we could develop this through a lot of study, but it basically means both of them are completely, totally filled with the Spirit of God, which is giving them the oil, substance, and fuel to be able to minister, and both of them as lampstands shine bright for the glory of God. Now, when the book of Revelation opened during the church age, the churches were the lampstands. They were the ones that were to be filled with the Spirit of God, with the people of God, and they were to respond to the Word of God and shine forth the glory of God. But at this point in the Great Tribulation, the church is gone. Church isn't here. So what you have are these two prophets. They're the lampstands. And they will have a unique empowerment by the Holy Spirit, as it were, a divine oil fuel that will enable them to shine bright at this moment. And there'll be two men that will stand out to the world. There'll be two men who will stand up tall for the word of God. The world will hate them. The world will hate them. But as you'll see, God is going to honor them. Now, this imagery of lampstands and olive trees comes from the book of Zechariah, chapter 4. And it is imagery that refers to two who are empowered by God's spirit to represent God to the world. And those two who were back there and then were Zerubbabel, and they also were the high priest Joshua. But the two prophets who were actually used by God to get that temple rebuilt and get things going were Haggai and Zechariah. They were the two prophets who were literally God raised up at that point to kind of point those two men, Zerubbabel, who was the political leader, and Joshua, who was the religious leader, to get going for the Lord. And what I think that God is doing here is he's doing something that he's always done in past history. He's got two guys, they're two prophets, their responsibility is to communicate the word of God. Now before we move on, I want to make one more observation. These true prophets are empowered to communicate God's word and shine forth the truth of God and they're doing that during the dark days of the tribulation and they are going to be hated by almost everyone in the world. And I believe, ladies and gentlemen, that when a believer chooses to get serious about God in the Word, they probably aren't going to win a popularity contest with the majority of people. When people are actually interested in obeying the Scriptures, they will discover that they will run into a buzzsaw, a buzzsaw that will not be looked at as being favorable or positive by people that are out of sync with God, but they can know this, they please the Lord. Now, the sixth fact about them is these two prophet witnesses have power to kill people. Verse 5 says, And if anyone wants to harm them, fire flows out of their mouth and devours their enemies. So if anyone wants to harm them, he must be killed in this way. God is going to give these two prophet witnesses the specific, unique, prophetic power to execute and kill people until their job's done. Till their time is up, he's going to give them very special power to pronounce an instant death penalty on anyone who would try to hurt them or anyone that would try to kill them. And apparently he's giving them a unique ability to perhaps call down fire from heaven. Remember Elijah did that and he called down fire and he covered the altar with water and he called down fire and God sent fire to burn it up. Or they're able to speak just instant judgment and fire just immediately kills the person they're speaking against. Now that's another difference between the dispensation of 
what's going on in the tribulation and the dispensation of grace. Because in the grace age, we're to have a kind of a turn-the-other-cheek mentality, but here are these prophets, they have an immediate vengeance kind of ministry. Many believers will have died in the first three and a half years of the tribulation, but not these two, and people try to harm them, they're going to die. Now, some of them have tried to figure out who it is that these two prophets are, and I'll talk about that in just a minute in light of prophetic fact number seven. These two prophet witnesses have power over nature. Verse 6 says, they have the power to shut up the sky so that rain will not fall during the days of their prophesying, and they have power over the waters to turn them into blood and to strike the earth with every plague as often as they desire. The apostle John, who was writing this, knew what it was like to have special divine power given to you, to have authority over demons and disease, because Jesus had given those apostles unique abilities at various moments so that they could do the miraculous kinds of things. So he certainly would recognize that God had given these two this kind of power. And during the tribulation, these two will be able to do things concerning nature, which will display the fact they are prophets of God. They'll be able to shut up the sky so that it will not rain. They'll be able to turn water into blood. They'll be able to strike or hit the earth with various plagues. Now, there have been a lot of guesses who these two are. We know they're two men. That we know. Some have speculated it would be Moses and Elijah. Many think it would be those two because these are the kinds of things that both of those individuals did. They actually saw Christ as king at his transfiguration, and many conclude that they would be the logical choices to be here to establish him just before he comes back in all of his glory. Others have thought it could be Enoch and Elijah because neither one of them died. Enoch was taken by the Lord, raptured, and Elijah was also taken up in a whirlwind, separated by a chariot of fire, and he went up into heaven, and he didn't die either. And the argument that's used for supporting the fact that it's Enoch and Elijah is that the writer of Hebrews says, it's appointed unto man once to die, and after this, the judgment. So they say, well, those were the two guys who never died, And so, therefore, they would be the two, logically, that would come back. However, when you think about that, that isn't proof of anything. Because at the rapture of the church, every believer is not going to die. Every believer who is here at the rapture of the church is not going to face death because Hebrews says it's appointed unto man once to die. We know from Paul's instruction that we'll be changed in a moment in a twinkling of an eye and we'll be caught up in the air instantly to meet the Lord in the air and so shall we ever be with the Lord. So that to me is a mute point. It's not even a sound theological argument. I think we're just safe to say we don't know who these guys are. We don't know their names and God hasn't revealed their names. But what we do know about them is these prophetic signs are going to prove and support their prophetic predictions of what is about to happen. And if we keep in mind that the Antichrist has entered into some peace treaty with Israel, these two are going to be predicting exactly what he's going to do. These signs are going to show they're telling the truth. What's coming against Israel? These signs are going to prove to these people they're not lions sitting there in Jerusalem. This stuff's going to go down. And they'll be testifying of some amazing futuristic things, and the signs they do are going to back them up. Now, the eighth fact is these two prophet witnesses will be killed by the Antichrist. Verse 7. When they have finished their testimony, the beast 
that comes up out of the abyss will make war with them and overcome them and kill them. Now, verse 7 makes it clear that when their ministry is over, when they finished accomplishing what God wants them to accomplish, this beast is going to surface who will kill them. They can't be touched until they finish their ministry, and this beast is going to surface who will kill them. We're going to meet this beast in the next couple of chapters, but this does signal to us the true nature of the Antichrist in regard to Israel. Now, this in Revelation is the first mention of this guy, but we're introduced to him in the book of Daniel. That's where it's so important to compare Scripture with Scripture. No prophecy of Scripture is a private interpretation. There are multiple passages that enable the Scriptures to be interpreted accurately. This is the first of 36 references in the book of Revelation to this beast. And this is not a beast, this is the beast. Now Daniel spoke of this beast, and we kind of laid it out a few weeks ago, as being the most ferocious, dreadful, terrifying political leader to ever exist. He would become the law and dictator of the world. He would be permitted by God to have that power for 1260 days. Daniel says he will surface as a vicious beast to Israel in the middle of the tribulation. We're introduced to him right here, so that tells us we're getting near the middle of the tribulation. He's identified as the beast, which is a word that means he's vicious, he's cunning, he's violent. He is going to rip people to shreds. That's what he will be all about. And we learn more of him in the tribulation in Revelation chapter 13. Now the text says here in verse 7, he comes or he ascends on a bino. He rises up out of the abyss, which means he's a special satanic person who's empowered by forces coming out of hell where demons exist. Now the abyss is a place of torment. Demons are scared to even to go there. They don't want to even be there for any amount of time at all. If we do some a little theological thinking here, I'm going to give you speculation as to why does it say he comes up out of the abyss. I want you to go over to Revelation chapter 13 for just a minute, and I want to point out verse 3 to you. In Revelation chapter 13 and verse 3, I saw one of his heads as if it had been slain and his fatal wound was healed. This guy obviously suffered a fatal wound. And then if you drop down to verse 11, then I saw another beast coming out of the earth, and he had two horns like the lamb, and he spoke as the dragon. Verse 12, he exercises all the authority of the first beast in his presence, and he makes the earth and those who dwell on to worship the first beast whose fatal wound was healed. We know that this Antichrist is going to suffer some type of assassination fatal wound to the head. Now here's the best I can give you tonight. It may prove to be wrong, and if we get in heaven and it turns out to be wrong, you can tell me there, don't tell me now. Because <laughs> I have thought this thing through. The Antichrist first surfaces at the beginning of the tribulation. He comes as a small political player, he rises up, he goes to Israel, he makes a peace deal with her. According to Daniel, he will make a deal that will allow her to get the temple rebuilt. He'll allow her to get the offerings and sacrifices going again. I suspect shortly after that, he's going to be assassinated. I think that where his spirit and soul go are to this abyss. And I think at the three and a half year point, thereabouts, 
What is happening here is he is being called back up, having suffered that mortal wound to the head. He's being called back up to actually come into existence, which will put the world in awe. Because the world is going to understand this guy, we saw him dead. I mean, he was shot in the head and killed. But he's now brought back to life, and that's going to be something that will affect the whole world to the point that they'll just give him allegiance to the whole world. He'll claim he's God. I mean, he's going to say blasphemous things. You'll meet a lot of them when we get over to Revelation 13. So at this point in the Great Tribulation, this satanic, demonic man comes up, and when this happens, there are three results. He makes war. He makes war with the two prophets. He will overcome the true prophets, and he will kill the two prophets. That's what he's going to do. When he first comes back up out of the abyss, that's what he's going to do. What he doesn't realize is that this is all part of a sovereign plan of God. God does not permit him to touch them until they have completed their witnessing responsibilities. Now, the ninth fact is they're not going to be buried. Verse 8 says, And their dead bodies will lie in the street of the great city, which mystically is called Sodom and Egypt, where also their Lord was crucified. So you're talking about Jerusalem. Those from the peoples and tribes and tongues and nations will look at their dead bodies for three and a half days and will not permit their dead bodies to be laid in a tomb. And those who dwell on the earth will rejoice over them and celebrate, and they will send gifts to one another because these two prophets tormented those who dwell on the earth. Now, even the worst criminals that we know get a burial. They get something. When Charles Manson died, a Nazarene pastor at least had some type of service, and then they put his body in a nice-looking casket so people could file by and look at Charles Manson, and then ultimately he was cremated and they spread his ashes somewhere in California. When Saddam Hussein died, they gave him an honorable burial in his hometown, 95 miles north of Baghdad. So even the worst of criminals get funerals and burials, not these two guys. These are prophets of God. Should be two of the most respected men on the face of the earth. They don't get a funeral. In fact, there are four facts brought out about them. The dead bodies will lie in the street of Jerusalem. That's what verse 8 says. Their dead bodies are going to lie in the street of the great city. Jerusalem is often given metaphorical names to describe the depravity of the city, to describe the corruption of the city. So they're given two names here, and they're not good names, Sodom and Egypt. I mean, when you think of Sodom, you think of immoral, perverted sex. That's the thought that goes through your mind. That's exactly the thought God wants to go through your mind. When you think of Egypt, you think of people that were given to idolatry, and they were given over to butchering people and persecuting God's people. And at this point in the tribulation, Jerusalem is about to be taken over by the Antichrist, who's going to turn it into a completely immoral, idolatrous headquarters that will specifically target the Jews with the goal of destroying every one of them. And that is why Jesus warned the nation. He said, when you see this abomination of desolation, I mean, when this guy goes into the temple and he demands that he wants to be worshipped as God, you get out of that city as fast as you can. Don't you even go back and get a coat. Don't go get anything. You get out of there as fast as you can. Now, it's certainly possible, based on Daniel 11.37, and we already pointed that out, that he'll have no regard or desire for women, which indicates he will be brutal to women. No woman will get in this guy's way, but it also could mean he'll be a guy who leans toward homosexuality. That may be his bent, his kind of immorality. 
And that would make Jerusalem just like Sodom, and his attempt to exterminate the Jews will make it just like Egypt. So these two dead bodies are lying in that corrupt city at that point of Jerusalem. Secondly, the dead bodies will be viewed by people all over the world. Verse 9 makes that point clear. Those from the peoples and tribes and tongues and nations will look at their dead bodies for three and a half days and will not permit their dead bodies to be laid in a tomb. I mean, this is going to be big news. People will be sitting home watching their big HD flat screens. And they're going to be tuning into the internet feeds. And for years, people were baffled. Well, how in the world could they see this all over the world? Simple now. Satellite. You have satellite TV, you have satellite internet, and based on that, people from all over the world, they're going to be tuning into this stuff 24 hours a day. They're going to be tuning in just to look at the dead bodies. That's how much they're hated. They're going to tune in and look at the dead bodies lying in the street of Jerusalem. And more than likely, the thing that will prompt the world to tune in will be the fact that these two prophets said they would be killed, and they probably made a prediction, you go ahead and kill us, we'll rise again. I mean, there's going to be worldwide interest in this stuff. I mean, these guys have been making some amazing predictions in the first three and a half years, and probably they told them, we're going to be killed, but we're going to rise again. Which brings us to the third fact, the dead bodies will be viewed for three and a half days. Verse 9 says, and their bodies will be viewed three and a half days. The fact that they are in the street three and a half days is sovereignly time controlled by God. That number three and a half is not a coincidence, by the way. When God mentions they'll be there three and a half days, that corresponds nicely with three and a half years that the Antichrist is going to be authorized to kill and destroy Israelis just before God ultimately intervenes and raises her up again. And the reason for that is those days are very near. Now the fourth fact is the dead bodies will be a cause for worldwide parties. I want you to notice verse 10. And those who dwell on the earth will rejoice over them and celebrate, and they will send gifts to one another because these two prophets tormented those who dwell on the earth. You want to see a description of how wretched this world is? How out of sync this world is with God? You look at this picture right here. This is the only moment of happiness. It's the only moment of joy that you can find in the tribulation. And the thing that is causing them the joy is that two men of God, speaking the truth of God, are dead. This is how wicked the world becomes in the tribulation. Donald Gray Barnhouse said one time he actually saw a Christmas card that was quoting Revelation 11.10 as a basis for celebrating and exchanging gifts at Christmas. What a butchering of a context. What a butchering of a concept that you would dare quote this verse and use it as a basis for celebrating Christmas. As J. Vernon McGee called this, this is the devil's Christmas. This holiday is not designed to honor the birth of Jesus Christ. This holiday is designed to honor the death of two prophets that were predicting the return of Jesus Christ. And we get a glimpse here again about the other depravity that's dominating the tribulation. The world hates God. The world hates truth. The world hates Jesus Christ. The world hates the word of God. It hates the people of God. As Dr. John Wolverd said, a righteous prophet is always a torment to a wicked generation. And I think as we 
near the rapture, and I think we're rapidly nearing the rapture, we can expect that there will be a hatred for God's word more and more. When you try to present something that's true to the word of God, there will be a hatred of it. There will be a promotion of party paganism that will continue to escalate until we're gone. And after we're gone, it'll get worse. Which brings us to the tenth fact. These two witnesses will publicly be raised and raptured. Verse 11 says, But after the three and a half days, the breath of life from God came into them, and they stood on their feet, and great fear fell upon those who were watching them. And they heard a loud voice from heaven saying to them, Come up here. Then they went up into heaven in the cloud, and their enemies watched them. Now, this is going to be one amazing moment. And there are some, by the way, who read into this, this is the church being raptured. Where do you see that? Where do you see that? You have to take this completely out of its context to say this is where the church is raptured. My goodness, where does the church call down fire from heaven? Where does the church turn water to blood? Where does the church speak things and people die? I mean, where does that happen? We don't do that in the church age. This is referring to these two prophets. Furthermore, the pronouns that are used here are not connected to the church at all because ecclesia is a feminine noun, and you have masculine pronouns that are used here, so that doesn't even grammatically fit. So to actually say this refers to the church being raptured, you're just involved in total eisegesis. You're reading into the text something that isn't there, not exegesis, taking out from the text what is there. Now these two martyrs will stand up on their feet and they will be raised, and when they get up, great fear, great fear is going to come on all those that are tuning in watching this. For three and a half days, they have looked at these dead bodies, and three and a half days later, the people are going to watch all over the world, and they're going to see these bodies that are standing up, and then, I believe, all over the world, they're going to hear the words, come up here. Those are the exact words we're going to hear when we're raptured. I'm convinced of that. John heard him when that's how he got up there. He heard him clear back in chapter 4 at the end of the church age when he was taken up into heaven. And when God says, come up here, up these two are going to go and all their enemies of the world are going to watch them. I just am going to suspect here that because this is on worldwide web and we're talking worldwide satellite TV, news are going to interrupt. I mean, if people aren't even watching it, the news is going to interrupt and say, hey, those two guys, we've just heard a voice from heaven. They're gone into the clouds. They'll be talking about this. And you would logically think that as the world sees them go, they'd be happy. I mean, they're celebrating because they're dead. So you would think, well, now that they're gone, we're going to really be happy. But verse 11 says, great fear, great fear fell upon those that were watching them, and it should. Because what God is about to do is going to be very powerful in pouring out his judgment against them. See, those that are watching this had probably been listening to these two prophets predict what was going to happen next. They probably had heard it, and now they realize, oh my goodness, we're about to experience the finale of the wrath of God. Which brings us to the 11th fact, the departure of these two witnesses signals the worst destruction. Verse 13, and in that hour there was a great earthquake, and a tenth of the city fell, 
7,000 people were killed in the earthquake, and the rest were terrified and gave glory to the God of heaven. The second woe is past. Behold, the third woe is coming quickly. At the same hour that these two went up into heaven, you have this tremendous earthquake from God that shakes specifically this area. It destroys one-tenth of the city of Jerusalem and kills 7,000 people. These are precise numbers here. I don't want to dabble with those numbers and say, well, we don't know what those numbers really are. They say what they are. One-tenth of the city is destroyed by the earthquake, and 7,000 people are dead. And the people who are left behind realize there's a God who has more power than the Antichrist. He killed them. This beast killed them. But three and a half days later, there was a powerful God that brought them back to life. So God basically says, all right. You've allowed two of mine to be killed in the city. I'll take 7,000 a year. One minute, just uh, earthquake, and they're gone. Now, this is fascinating because when John wrote Revelation, Jerusalem had already been destroyed by Titus in AD 70. It wasn't even standing. Think about this. So John is already seeing a rebuilt Jerusalem. He's seeing a rebuilt temple. And he's seeing this happen in Jerusalem. And when these two prophets ascend, there will be some who will give glory to God. Verse 13 says, and the rest were terrified and gave glory to the God of heaven. I'm not sure exactly what that means. It's possible that at that point, you have a remnant of people in Israel who realize those prophets were telling us the truth. And boy, we better get out of here. We better flee this city. And they realize that they're giving glory to God. On the other hand, it could just mean for the first time in the tribulation, they're starting to acknowledge there is a powerful God who's controlling this thing. And in verse 14, we learn the second woe judgment is done and the third final woe judgment is about to hit. And you'll certainly see it will be a tremendous, devastating judgment that will hit by the hand of God. Of God. Now, the tragedy of this is these people wouldn't even have to be in the tribulation if they would just simply believe in the Lord Jesus Christ this side of the tribulation in the church age. If they would place their faith in Jesus Christ, they would be saved. If they would place their faith in Jesus Christ, they'd never have to worry about the wrath of God, ever experiencing any form of the wrath of God. But they're just so hard hearted, they won't do it. Don't let that happen to you. Let's pray. If you've never trusted Christ as Savior, settle it right now. Just pray something like this. God, I'm a sinner. I know it. I admit it. I thank you that Christ died on the cross for me, and right now I believe on him to be saved. Our Father, we thank you for the word of God. Thank you for the surety of prophecy. We thank you that we can go to the Old Testament, and we see the Old Testament developed in the New Testament. There's just a real symmetry to your word. I pray that we would continue to learn more, understand more, grow more. In Jesus' name, amen.